Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's weekly podcast on the big events shaping the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman and I'm a senior correspondent for our monitor. This week's guest is Asla Aydin Tashbash. She's a senior fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She's also a global opinions columnist for the Washington Post. Asla has covered US-Turkish relations for many years, both from Washington and Ankara. She's also held numerous senior positions with several Turkish newspapers and is an influential lady overall. We'll be discussing the decidedly sorry state of US-Turkish relations in light of the upcoming meeting between Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Joe Biden. It's going to be their first meeting since Biden became president, and it will be on the sidelines of next week's NATO summit in Brussels. So can this summit make a difference? Are US-Turkish relations salvageable? Welcome to our show, Asla. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. Happy to be here, Amberin. Thank you for inviting me. So let's just jump right into this and look at what you think is likely to happen during this much anticipated uh, summit between uh, President Erdogan and Joe Biden that's going to be taking place on the sidelines of the NATO conference in um, Brussels on the 14th of June. There are so many sort of problems between these two countries and notably the S-400 missile crisis, I would call it, which has really, really driven a huge wedge and led to sanctions on Turkey and its exclusion from the F-35 program. And the Biden administration has made it very clear that unless Turkey gets rid of these things, that the relationship really can't get onto a better footing. So what do you predict will be the outcome of this summit? Will they be able to, you know, um, move forward on some of these very thorny issues? Uh, Amberin, I think the atmospherics of this summit is likely to be generally positive because these events tend to be that way. In other words, you know, even if they cannot, the two leaders cannot sit and uh, hammer out a solution to the S-400 issue, which is unlikely to happen, of course, but, the, 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 you know, in general, there'll be a photo op, my friend this, my friend that, and sort of smiles and everything. And it's particularly important for the Turkish side to uh, project an image that this went all fine, that this is a great meeting. And I think you'll see that in Turkish media for reasons that have to do with the economy, for Turkey's vulnerability, strategic uh, perhaps loneliness at the time. But I think there will be a desire for a positive uh, photo op. And that will happen in my, uh, you know, if I had to guess, I would say the atmospherics would be fine as it is usually with these events. But in reality, as you say, uh, I find it highly unlikely for us to have a solution on the S-400 issue in the short run. And um, we're also seeing something far more fundamental, which is a downgrading of sorts of the Turkish-US relationship. It's no longer the type of relationship 
that I use that I, that you and I are familiar with from our reporting a decade ago, two decades ago. I was a U.S. correspondent, and it was in the past, and it was such an intense partnership. And during Obama years, you know, Erdogan was one of the uh, one of the world leaders. U.S. president relied upon for regional issues. US, Turkey was the linchpin of U.S policy towards the Middle East and, uh, and the region. It's no longer the case. Now we're looking into a situation in which the two countries have a long list of problems, as you have alluded to, including S-400, but not just that. I mean, there are also existential issues that we can go into. But they seem, at this point in history, after a, a, a tumultuous few years, they seem determined to focus on the glass half full. That is to say, uh, to focus on areas where they could develop partnerships, not fundamentally important areas perhaps for Turkey or the US, but still let's focus on what we can do together. So the way US officials describe it, and I think it's pretty much how Turkish officials describe it is, you know, uh, manage our differences, expand our areas of partnership and uh, focus on democracy and human rights. So I think all those three elements, uh, you know, here are the differences, uh, here is what we can do together, and here is how important human rights and democracy is for us. All of those three components will be in that meeting. Uh, I think President Biden very much feels he is someone uh, who's, who has good personal relations with world leaders. He's spoken about that before in the campaign trail and later on. And Erdogan probably really also feels he has this sort of in-person uh, charm or ability to convince or, you know, world leaders. So I think they'll both be testing that, you know, probably having a private conversation. Uh, it is my sense that uh, Washington wants to turn a page uh, after a, a good deal of tension in the relationship and sanctions that you've spoken to. Turn a page does not mean going back to the same relationship. Turn a page means aiming for a, a relatively conflict-free relationship of sorts. That's a low bar. It's not a high bar, but it's no, certainly it's possible. It is a very low bar, Asla. And so um, just could you briefly sum up for us why the relationship is where it is? Why are things, you know, so bad? What's the background to this? There's so many uh, reasons uh, on both sides. Uh, but let me start with the Turkish reasoning. And I think it does go back to the coup attempt uh, in, of 2016. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's no secret that Tur Turkish officials and the government, you know, do blame, even if they don't say it openly on uh, all the time, they do blame the US for harboring the Gulen movement that they see is responsible for the coup, for supporting YPG, for the supporting Syrian Kurds. And I think there's been a sea of change in Turkey's bureaucratic, political, and security culture. I mean, in reality, and this is very interesting to me, again, as someone who's been covering this relationship for a long time, that this change, this transformation is very interesting. But there is a deep mistrust 
and a sense that U.S. is an important ally, is an important country, not to, but does not have our best interests at heart. And this is on both issues. I, you know, I on the coup. Well, that the distrust, though, has always been present, hasn't it? I mean, we've seen that before in the days when the military sort of used to run the country as well. You know, on the one hand, they valued that strategic alliance and the, the NATO uh, membership and all the benefits that it brought. But at the same time, there was always this paranoia about U.S. intentions. Were they trying to establish an independent Kurdistan in Iraq, for example? Yet we never had this kind of meltdown. So, so, so are you saying that the coup, the fact that uh, Erdogan appears to believe that Obama was somehow supporting this coup, is that what really flipped things? Is that what you're saying? Well, I think that mistrust has always been there on some level, but not at this level. I mean, at the end of the day, U.S. helped uh, the capture of Öcalan, PKK leader, has supported Turkey in uh, the fight against PKK over the years, while also criticizing Turkey's human rights record. So it was always like, you know, we don't fully trust uh, anybody, Turks tend to not trust any nation, for starters, but but there was a determination uh, to be a responsible, upstanding member of the Western League. So Turkey was very much embedded in transatlantic institutions. Now, two things have changed, uh, I think, since the coup. One, the level of mistrust is exponentially higher. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the words of one Turk. Turkish official who spoke to me after the coup, he said U.S. is supporting not one, not two, but three terrorist organizations that we're fighting against. And he meant uh, at the time, obviously, this is uh, I'm not saying that he was right, but I think it, it, it tells you about a frame of mind. It was he meant the PKK, the Gillan movement. And then uh, I think the third he meant, uh, you know, the, the, ISIS. It's stark. It's it's I know it's a stark statement, but it tells you about a particular mindset. But the second big shift since the coup is, I think, Turkey's decision and desire to develop some type of a strategic autonomy that, you know, a resurgent Turkey, a belief in its own destiny, uh, the idea that Turkey can have very close relations with Russia, China, US, and Europe, and that it is on par to be one of the great powers in the 21st century. There's been a good deal of talk on great uh, power competition uh, during the Trump period uh, here in this country. Turkey's long switched to that mindset. They, you know, people already think there's great power competition, that, that Turkey, and I think the idea that Erdogan has is that Turkey should be one of those great powers in an age. Well, of- you explain that very well. Sorry for jumping in very well in your foreign uh, affairs article, and I'd like to come to that. But before we, you know, go there, I just want to ask you, given the current trajectory, and you say that basically Biden and Erdogan will kind of slap a bandaid on things and sort of focus on the areas where there can still be cooperation and NATO seems to be you know one of the linchpins you know it's the one western uh, institution where Turkey is still very present but we're now seeing Turkey sort of at least in the eyes of some NATO allies 
acting as a kind of stalking horse for Russia, most recently when it sort of watered down the language condemning Belarus uh, for, the, um, for the journalist who was sort of taken off that Ryanair flight. So, I mean, how sustainable is this? Well, I, well, look, there are two schools of thought within NATO. It's true, there are some member states and some voices that feel Turkey is not acting in the spirit of the alliance and not just in issues like Belarus and you know Baltic. Uh, there have been a, a couple of other incidents in the past in terms of cooperation with Israel, cooperation with Armenia, uh, some of the exercises in Baltic states. But then you also have other countries, other member states, and I would probably say NATO Secretary General seems to be in this uh, of this opinion too, who feel nonetheless Turkey is a very important uh, NATO member and still important in pushing back against Russia. So you always have a tension between those, these two ideas. I think Turkey's NATO membership is not likely to survive. Belarus issue was definitely, you know, something that upset people, but you also have Turkey selling drones to Ukraine and Poland in ways that strengthen uh, transatlantic results. So it's it's an up and down, uh, two steps forward, one step backward situation. But NATO participation is also, uh, we're seeing Turkey wanting to do more with NATO over the past few months in a way to redress some of the imbalances in its foreign policy, participating in exercises, trying to, you know, so it's going to be a difficult but manageable situation. But at the same time, you have this sort of what looks like an escalation between the US and Turkey, because um, as long as this S-400 issue is not resolved, basically, as long as Turkey doesn't get rid of these things, um, the US says it will continue to sanction Turkey, particularly since we know that Turkey is talking about getting a second um, set of batteries of S-400s and now talking about buying Sukhoi jets from the Russians because it's excluded from the F-35. So, you know, how do, how do you manage both of these sort of very contradictory trajectories? On the one hand, relations getting worse and worse, but particularly on the security front between uh, the United States, which is the NATO's most important uh, member, and yet Turkey sort of, as you say, uh, seeking to sort of expand its role in NATO. How so does that I, work? So it seems like a relationship to manage. And it also seems to me that both sides want to. And the formula for that is what is often referred to as compartmentalization, compartmentalization of the problem areas. That is to say, let us freeze the S-400 issue uh, and focus on what we can do together in a conflict-free setting. It's not easy but certainly doable as long as you are willing to accept this as a watered down version of the type of alliance the two countries had. In other words, it's not, you know, we're not looking into a situation in which Turkey and US will have an intense partnership on any front, but 
they are, I think, seeking to expand coordination on issues that are not perhaps of fundamental importance to either side, but at least allows some type of confidence building. So as for 100 issue, I agree with you. It doesn't look like there will be a solution in the short term, but can Turkey live with that? I think so. Can the US live with that? I think so. We are then looking into a situation in which there won't be an intense arms defense industry cooperation. There won't be an intense security cooperation, but at least uh, this, if this whole talk of compartmentalization is the way things will be handled, then they can nonetheless continue to have a cooperation in other areas. I, so I want to point areas out are those Yes, what? I think that's a relevant question. Again, I don't think these areas are of fundamental importance to the geopolitical uh, discussion, but let's 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 go through them. I think Turkey's support for Ukraine and Poland and uh, uh, these are important. Uh, secondly, but more important than that is possibility of Turkish participation in peacekeeping in Afghanistan after US forces leave. Now, this has been on the table for a while, for a couple of months. It is quite an ambitious project because it does mean we know that US forces are leaving on a schedule that's far more expedited than people originally imagined, not this fall, but perhaps this summer. Mm -hmm. that means really Europeans will also leave. So now one a conversation that started during the last, the tail end of the Trump administration and is continuing now is to have Turkish peacekeepers in Afghanistan. And I understand this to be a very difficult choice for Turkey because once um, NATO forces leave, there could be some residual US presence in the airport. There could be some residual NATO presence, uh, European presence at the airport. But effectively, we are look looking into a situation in which the Taliban would have a political and military superiority on the ground. And, and to, be, to, to put it frankly, it would be a matter of uh, months before the, the Taliban take over much of the country. Uh, would Turkey be willing to uh, put its foot down and, and agree to, uh, to, to serve, to send a peacekeeping force in that situation? I think this is one of the very interesting discussions that are taking place and I'm sure will take place between Biden and, and uh, Erdogan. And of course, you know, it buys Turkey a good deal of uh, credit in terms of their Western uh, you know, they're, they're standing in the West, but I don't think Turkey will rush into this. They will be trying to, they will be thinking of the pros and cons, which is why they have still not fully agreed to uh, sending a large, a few thousand peacekeepers to protect the airport in Afghanistan. I think they'll also be looking to see what the Taliban feels about it. So all this is in in line with obviously US policy of ending forever wars, but you know, does Turkey want to step in into this conflict which is far away, which would, you know, which would which would help repair its some of at least partially repair its its sort of a difficult relationship with the US, but is also a very risky proposition. So that's one thing to watch out. And Libya is another issue. Um, Trump, during, you know, Trump had a very 
to the extent that he cared about Libya, which I, I, I doubt that he did. But, but during the Trump administration, you had a very uh, up and down, zigzagging US policy on Libya, which was essentially support for Haftar at some point, even though US policy was in support of the Tripoli government. But then you had, so now things seem to have changed. Uh, you have a European led process called the Berlin process, which promises to bring some type of stability, at least in the war. And you no longer have a Trump administration in town who is supportive overtly or, 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 or in private, or supportive of Haftar forces. So that's a chance for a dialogue with Turkey. And that's already started. I think Turkey has been supportive of the Berlin process. We're looking into conversations in which Turkey could, uh, the conversations that Turkey is also having with uh, Germany, European allies, but in, but Egypt as well, uh, and seems to be supporting the Berlin process. And meanwhile, um, US, not wanting to delve too deeply into this conflict, is also supportive of the Berlin process and has a, uh, you know, it, it is is interested in strengthening some type of governance in Tripoli. All of these things uh, mean uh, there is once again a convergence of Turkish and US interests in stabilizing Libya. And the key point, the key parameter for that would be whether Turkey will uh, honor, uh, will, will, will agree to uh, Egyptian uh, demands to see a reduction of foreign forces in the country and by and those that, foreign course, forces are not just Turkish but also Syrian specifically um, Syrian rebel I mean, I think proxies, it, yeah and specifically so, Syrian we're looking at the, the test for this would be if Turkey would agree to and I think uh, would agree to pull back some of the Syrian so uh, let's talk about Syria Astagen because that's another big bone of contention between Turkey and the United States do you see any possibility of Turkey coming to some kind of cold peace with the Syrian Democratic Forces? That's certainly something that the previous administration or the previous Syria envoy, uh, Ambassador Jeffrey, was pushing very hard to achieve. And it sort of <laughs> didn't work with Turkey coming in in October 29 and basically taking over large chunks of that SDF-controlled territory causing quite a bit of upheaval. Do, do, do you see any kind of um, possibility of uh, a modus vivendi between Turkey, the SDF and the United States in Syria? Well, I think the best case scenario for Syria right now in terms of Turkish-US relations is freezing the current situation and the current map. Can we call it a modus vivendi? I think we could call it some type of an uncomfortable modus vivendi, but that seems to be what's achievable in the short run. Uh, as to whether or not Turkey can ultimately go back to some type of an arrangement with Kurds or Syrian Kurds, it's hard to say, it's hard to see that happening in the short run in Turkish politics, uh, given the sort of the very strange events that have been taking place and Erdogan's reliance on 
the more nationalist and ultra-nationalist camps within both in politics and in the state bureaucracy. So in the short term, that does, uh, you know, a return to the peace process does not seem uh, very likely. But then again, you know, Amberin, you know this better than me. Turkey is a country that defies most analytical assumptions. I mean, how many times have people been wrong on Turkey? Last time we, uh, you know, the, the, the last example is um, in 2019 in the local elections when you had the government, no less a government backed by uh, ultra-nationalist MHP running to imprisoned Kurdish leader Abdullah Öcalan in prison for a deal on the elections. So because of Erdogan's domestic vulnerability, and by that, I mean, not just electoral vulnerability and certainly economic vulnerability, but a vulnerability in terms of the rifts that are coming to surface within the governing coalition. I don't rule out anything in Turkey. Do I think a pivot to Kurds is likely in the short run? No. But is it possible? It is certainly possible at some point, particularly if we're going to talk about elections. There's also, on the other hand, this fear among the Syrian Kurds in particular that they may end up being some kind of bargaining chip in the US-Turkey effort to repair their own relationship. Do you see any risk of that? Of You certainly get the sense that that's what Turkey would like, is for the US to axe its relationship with the SDF, and that might be the basis for Turkey then taking some steps on the F-400, S-400, sorry, of a nature that would satisfy the United States. What we are hearing from the Biden administration again and again uh, is that they'll stick with their uh, Kurdish allies in Syria. And it doesn't seem that's likely to change uh, anytime soon. Would a deal with S-400s, with, with Turkey for S-400s uh, change that equation? I don't really think that the administration is, um, you know, planning on any swift changes in Syria policy at this point. But in the long run, I do think it's conceivable to imagine a Turk, U.S., Turkish, Russian conversation on Syria. It seems that will inevitably at some point, whether in two years time, five years time, that will have to happen. It doesn't necessarily have to mean, quote unquote, selling out Kurds, because uh, at the end of the day, Kurds are going to be part of Syria. And, uh, you know, the one thing everyone agrees on is the idea that a Kurdish state in Syria would be very destabilizing and is unachievable and not something basically any great power supports at this point. So a formula within the framework of Syria is something that may be part of a discussion. So let's come to our final point about, you know, Turkey, Turkey wanting to reassert itself and doing that, actually. Um, becoming a regional hegemon. And at the same time, you see countries now pushing back against that. And I'm referring to Cyprus, Greece, Egypt, Israel, and the UAE sort of picking, piggybacking on them, or sort of pushing back against Turkey. Um, how do you see things um, developing? I mean, at the same time, you also see Turkey 
trying to fix its relationship with some of these countries, and they would argue that it's mainly to disrupt this emerging bloc. Um, what, what, how successful do you think Turkey will be in pushing back against this bloc? It's been a very interesting time last few years, because as you pointed out, you had a resurgent Turkey, self-confidence, going after its own business and wanting to expand its military footprint, not just in East Med and Libya, but in the Gulf, in parts of, in, in the Horn of Africa, in, uh, and lately in the Caucasus. But you also had clearly the emergence of an anti-Turkey bloc. Uh, and it's been one of the most fundamental shifts in the geopolitical configuration with the U.S. retrenchment from the region uh, uh, and the sort of back and forth that you saw in the in the Trump during the Trump administration led to a very uh, very um, dangerous battle line in uh, on the periphery of Europe. And I think last summer, it's no secret that we came close to even a kinetic confrontation in the Mediterranean, where you had uh, Turkish and Greek uh, Navy boats ramming into one another, uh, Turkish and um, French uh, Navy locking their radars on each other, etc. And these things, of course, happen uh, uh, not when countries decide to go to war, but when accidents happen that lead to an escalation. So people were very concerned last summer. And it is a situation in which Turkey was assertive at times, hawkish in its rhetoric, but it's also a case that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're not followed. That is to say, there wasn't there was the presence of an anti-Turkey bloc. And uh, fundamentally, with the support of the Trump administration, you saw the emergence of uh, uh, the idea of a pipeline combining Israeli, Egyptian, Cypriot gas fields with a pipeline to Europe bypassing Turkey. And I think this, this is a 2018 East Med gas forum project. And I think this really triggered an existential fear, a siege, a fear of being under siege in Turkey, which is not difficult to tr trigger in the Turkish case, <laughs> as you well know, but it led to the Turkish uh, you know, deployment in Libya. So, uh, you know, now it seems to me that A, Turkey has reached the physical limits of its expansion in the area, and B, uh, there is an understanding that uh, this level of escalation is bad for everyone. And finally, I think Turkish policies and the alarming situation in Ismet has made this a pipeline um, bypassing Turkey physically, um, militarily, and economically unviable. So we're going to have, you know, so we're, what we've had over the past six months is a cooling down and a rethinking of the process. You also see that now Turkey has managed to peel off Italy and to an extent Israel from this whole project. Uh, there are you know, on the surface in Turkish-Israeli relationship, there's tensions, but it seems to me that Israel is not willing to rally behind, uh, uh, you know, an anti-Turkey bloc if it means war with Turkey. You still have, you know, uh, an alliance, uh, some sort of a rapprochement between Cyprus, uh, Greece, uh, UAE, France, and all of that, but 
cooler heads have prevailed and everyone has stepped back. But it does seem that Greece seems to have really uh, capitalized on all of this. When you look at the sort of increase in military cooperation between Greece and the United States, between Greece and Israel, um, it's, and Greece and the UAE, and it's quite extraordinary, and France, of course. Oh, yes, very much. Greece is totally capitalized on this, on Turkey's um, unilateral moves and isolation and the anxiety about a resurgent Turkey, positioning itself as the new uh, new Turkey of uh, that is to say, <laughs> obviously it's it's it, it, you know it doesn't have the same uh, level of military and demographic capability, but you know we've seen uh, two three fundamental uh, things happening: Greece uh, normalizing and improving its relations with Israel. Going back to 2017, this started during the Chipras period. It's a very strategic and uh, I think smart move for Greeks. And then, uh, and then uh, improving uh, its relations with the US and uh, basically upgrading its strategic alliance with the potential of becoming the new uh, US regional partner, opening, uh, you know, signing off on new uh, several more U.S. bases in their new U.S. bases in, uh, in Greek soil, including one in Crete, another one in uh, up in Trace, uh, sorry, in uh, the um, Alexandropoli. Uh, these are all signals to Turkey, I think, on some level, you are losing what you have in this transatlantic relationship, that the, that the real estate that Turkish uh, leaders have always uh, banked on is sort of no longer uh, there or no longer has the same value for transatlantic partners. Well, on that note, Asla, I think we'll end this program, which we've already run over time, but I could talk to you forever. Thank you so very much for being with us here today and uh, hope to have you back sometime soon, Asla Jim. It was great. Thanks. Thank you, Amber. Keep it's up the great fun. work. It's amazing what you do. Well, thank you. I'm flattered that you've said that. It's been a fun conversation. And uh, thank you for having me. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. So this brings us to the end of this week's On the Middle East. I look forward to being with you again very soon with another very interesting guest. 
Thank you and goodbye.